the guy known most for You Talk Too Much. He would have turned 94 years old today, which is why he was on my mind. That came out on Roulette Records in 1961, and it was written by Henry Glover. Joe, while he had the original release, there is a Chicago connection to this as well. It became a hit two years later as a surf anthem by the Rivieras, who actually recorded it in Chicago at Columbia Recording Studios. Bill Dobbslaw released it on Riviera. It was a B-side, but it was WLS that flipped it over, gave it enough airplay to interest USA Records that they put it out as an A-side, and it hit the national charts January 64. One of the last, last big American hits before the British invasion, and yes, it all started with Joe Jones, who would have been 94 today. All right, so I was mentioning that we're going to meet Sam Kleiner, the Flying Tigers the untold story of the American pilots who waged a secret war against Japan. You can go to Amazon.com, get yourself a copy, and you can get it as an Audible or a Kindle, or you can get a hard copy. It's all there. It's reasonably priced, and it's a fascinating story. Now, I, uh, before I introduce you to, uh, uh, to Sam, my true confession is that until this book, I thought Flying Tigers was a cargo airline. Well, there is a connection, actually, and yes, it was uh, absorbed by, I think, Fed, uh, Federal Express in about 1988. But as I, uh, before I read the book, which I have, and it, it's a great read because it's the first time that anything has been put out on this group of individuals other than diary mentions, because until that, that's all we had. But I looked in Wikipedia thinking, well, let me get a little overview. And the first thing I saw was that the American Volunteer Group was around from 1941 to 1942. Oh, really? Well, if you read the book, you're going to find out they were around a lot longer than that. So, Sam, welcome to WGN Radio. Thanks so much for having me on. Really happy to be here. It's a it's a great read, and as I say, it's a subject that I never thought much about it one way or the other. It was a cargo airline to me. And uh, what captured me, your book opens with an announcement on WOR that interrupted the play-by-play of the Giants-Dodgers crosstown rivalry. And, of course, that was the Pearl Harbor situation. What, what I didn't realize, fans in the stands who were oblivious at that moment heard an announcement as they were leaving that Navy men should report to their posts immediately, Army men should do so the next day. Uh, that, that was fascinating to me. That's the way the word of this disseminated? Yeah, you know, what I really wanted to do was to take readers back and sort of start with, um, you know, how Americans awoke to this new world that dawned on December 7, 1941. Um, Obviously, today, you know, we have, you know, push notifications and Twitter and so on. But that was a time when, you know, there, there wasn't really a great way to disseminate information. So people heard about it sort of on the radio. um, And it, it was a very scary time in the United States. You know, we woke up to a two-front war um, that in some ways felt very unwinnable. And 
the story that I tell, the story of the Flying Tigers of the American Volunteer Group, is really the first group of Americans that fight back against the Japanese after Pearl Harbor and become the first American heroes of the war. Their shark-faced T-40 becomes one of the iconic images of America at war. The first thing you see if you go into the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and the John Wayne movie, The Flying Tigers from 1942, a lot of uh, listeners might be familiar with. But no one had ever really told the story of who were these young men and some women who made up this unit and what they really did. That's what's so fascinating about it. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Navy pictures of the Hawaii devastation were delayed. And when they were reported a few weeks later, there was that little item about how, and there was this group of volunteers in China fighting the Japanese that had been bombing Chinese cities for years. Now, you know, you read that, and immediately that sounds about as implausible as it gets. So take me back, and uh, obviously I know some of this stuff from your book, but people who are listening may not know about Claire Chenault and Tex Hill and Jack Newkirk and so many other people, but uh, take me back to how the these American, most of them former military, initially wound up in China. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful story, and and for me, sort of getting into this, you know, my grandfather was a navigator on a B twenty five, so I sort of grew up with stories from the war, and I came across the story of the Flying Tigers, which I knew a little bit about, and just got enamored with it. So in two thousand fifteen. I um, was in touch with some family members of uh, pilots from the unit, and they invited me to come down to Florida to a reunion. And I thought, this is just, you know, let's go and see what happens. And I met a, 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 a gentleman by the name of Frank Lozanski, who um, was the last surviving member of this unit. And he, um, he and I started talking, and I heard his life story about how he was a young man from Detroit, Michigan, a child of the Great Depression, was a mechanic in the Army, and someone came to him and said, you want to go to China, um, you'll get paid a lot of money, and you'll be fighting against the Japanese. And this is all before Pearl Harbor. And I just thought that was, you know, from his perspective, what an incredible adventure that was. And then he ended up in this unit that was fighting against the Japanese right after um, Pearl Harbor. Um, their first battle was December 20th, 1941, in Kunming, China. And the, the backdrop that I really get into in the book is that um, China had been fighting against the Japanese going back to 1937, um, well before Pearl Harbor. And the Roosevelt administration, at the very highest levels, decided to authorize this unit as sort of a, a, a secret covert action that was going to go over and help the, the Chinese fight against the Japanese. So these, these young men and some women left the military, donned civilian clothes, crossed the Pacific on ocean liners carrying passports that listed false um, professions like missionaries and farmers. And sort of this ragtag unit then becomes, you know, they, they wake up after Pearl Harbor, they're training at a remote base in Burma, and they're on the wrong side of the Pacific. Any way of getting home is sort of cut off. Any way of getting reinforcements is cut off. And they, they fight back and become the first Americans to really fight back against the Japanese and prove to American public that was that was quite concerned about the war that that, that Americans could fight back and, and win in this war. It's interesting in terms of historical significance with regard to 
military and air uh, support at all. Claire Chenault, of course, born more close to the turn of the last century, I think it was 1909. And, uh, you know, here, here's a guy who survived the Spanish flu. And he was, he was, I guess, early involved with what would become uh, air, airplanes in the military. And I guess from what I can read by the mid-30s, he was a little disheartened. And so his motivation at first was China said, hey, come over and teach flying to us. Uh, I think that was before the government, our government, got involved with the action. Isn't that true? Yeah, it, it's it's a really remarkable story. Claire Chenault is sort of a, a, a you know a down on his luck um, army air pilot who's sort of a renegade, has some real clashes with his superiors. He had started with sort of a predecessor of the Blue Angels, sort of acrobatic flying in the army, and. He gets this invitation to go to China to advise the Air Force on um, developing tactics and developing an Air Force. And that offer was alluring to him as someone who sort of wanted to take his place in history. Guy from Louisiana who fell in love with planes when he saw one at the Louisiana State Fair. But he had a wife and seven children at home. And, you know, it's just from a human perspective, fascinating that he decides to pick up and leave and go over there, and he's fighting with them from 1937, um, and then comes back and works with the Roosevelt administration and Chinese diplomats and sort of creating this secret unit. And so part of what the book does is take you, you know, you're, you're there with the pilots as they're doing this, this fighting, but also tells the broader backstory of China's involvement with the war, um, and which we, we don't really think of today. We think of World War II probably in the context of the day landings at Normandy or the flag raising in Iwo Jima, but we don't typically think of China. And there's this whole fascinating China-Burma-India theater of the war that readers really get to see through the lens of the Americans who were there, um, which is a really important part of the war, and it's worth uh, remembering. It is fascinating, and uh, you're right. I think most of us see it more from a European perspective in general. And China was in its own turmoil, even apart from the from the war politically. You're talking about a time when Mao is going to rise. I mean, this, this is pre-absolute communism, and it, but it's on the agenda. There were there were so many things going on within the country, and then you hear that uh, that Claire Chenault and and his gang were uh, helping keep China in the war of China fell, Japan rose, and I say to myself, I know absolutely nothing about this. So we're talking the 30s now. What was the issue with Japan and China? Yeah, and you know, part of what I wanted to do in this book was tell this story through the lens that the Americans were there, who, who themselves, you know, these, these young pilots didn't know anything about that history. And so it sort of invites readers along through that through that journey, through through their eyes. You're not sort of getting, you know, it doesn't read like a textbook. It, it's supposed to read like an adventure story. And the, the context was that um, Japan was sort of, uh, you know, invading various countries in, in East Asia in the 30s. And in 1937, they invaded China. People might be familiar with the story of the rape of Nanking, where mm. some of my characters were. Um, and then also just this, massive use of um, the airplane as, as a tool of bombardment. So cities like Kunming and Chongqing were, were subject to these devastating bombing raids, which, you know, sort of presage the use of the airplane that we would see 
later on in, in Europe during the war. Um, and Claire Chenault was there as an advisor of the Chinese Air Force um, and, and sort of see it through, through his eyes. Um, and, and you're absolutely right that, you know, we tend to think of um, history as sort of a, a very neatly divided series of events. You know, that World War II started on December 7, 1941, goes through VJ Day, um, which you know, the 75th anniversary is next month. But what this shows is actually that the beginning of the war was a sort of more complicated thing, that Japan was already at war with China for four years. The U.S. was already sort of signaling some degree of involvement, um, you know, both uh, in the Atlantic and the Pacific. Um, and there was a very isolationist public that didn't want the Roosevelt administration to get involved. So a lot of this was really done in secret um, and driven by a handful of decision makers in the administration. I write a lot about the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgan Dow Jr., who was very involved in trying to aid China. Um, and, and, you know, at the core of the story is really these young pilots who make this pretty extraordinary decision um, to pick up and leave everything behind they've ever known and go off on this adventure where they don't know what's going to happen to them. Yeah, and of course, as we get closer to uh, to Pearl Harbor times, uh, a lot of these were military individuals. But the early days, like you say, ragtag guys who were uh, uh, sorted down on on how the military was treating them, and it was almost like, well, what the hell? China's better than nothing, and and off off they go. But the uh, the rape of uh, Nanjing is a fascinating story, and we'll pick it up there. And we're talking with Sam Kleiner, the Flying Tigers, the untold story of the American pilots who waged a secret war against Japan, uh, you're saying, why didn't I ever hear this in history class? And that's a that's a great question. Maybe if you did, you would have been more interested. I'm Raleigh James, if you got any questions, or reminisces for that matter. Springs, 83 years old, by the way, complications of COVID, led me to remember it was 57 years ago this week that he entered the pop charts for the first time with that song, 1963 on Reprise Records, number three pop, number 12 on the R&B charts. Interesting song, it was written in 1949 by Pete Seeger and fellow Weavers member Lee Hayes in support of progressivism. And he first, uh, Seeger first performed it at a Communist Party of the United States dinner, the leaders of whom were then on trial for trying to overthrow the American government. It was also performed as a warm-up song by the Weavers for noted communist Paul Robeson. 
in the hootenanny craze of the early 60s, Peter, Paul, and Mary released it. It did get to top 10 on the pop charts, but a year later, Trini released it, and boy, number three, quickly. Uh, he never was in the top 10 again, but he continued as a nightclub performer, which is how he was discovered at PJ's in L.A. Yeah, apparently, Frank Sinatra was a fan who owned the record label, and he sent Don Costa over to say, check out this guy. And, uh, and the rest was history. From what I understand, Trini was working on a song before he was hospitalized, uh, the proceeds of which were, were going to, uh, in fact, uh, help some facet of COVID-19. And his, uh, his partner, uh, songwriting partner, said it's, uh, uh, it's heavy irony that, uh, that it took him. And uh, so it did. So rest in peace, Trini Lopez. We're talking to Sam Kleiner. He's the author of The Flying Tigers, the untold story of the American pilots who waged a secret war against Japan. And when you read books like this, you start to realize that American history doesn't have to be told in a dry manner. It can be uh, very compelling. And, uh, of course, it is. And every, every day that we're living, we're making history. And to us, of course, it has great meaning. But, you know, when it's chronicled in the standard textbook fashion, years later, people say, ho-hum. Well, the, uh, the story of the Flying Tigers is anything but ho-hum. It was August of 37 that the Japanese invaded Shanghai, and it was just brutal for them. And as far as I know, that was the, the precept for the uh, Nanjing massacre. And so, uh, so, Sam, I find it, and you probably found this in your research, interesting that to this day, uh, Chinese and Japanese relations is strained over this in terms of how many did they kill and what did they do. This was a horrible massacre. Yeah, I think that um, China was subject. China was a series of massacres and bombardments throughout the 1930s, um, and, and really through through the end of the war by the um, by the Japanese. And you know, for us, I think that history always feels somewhat distant, partially because um, you know it happened on foreign soil. Um, but for the Japanese, and, or sorry, for the Chinese and, and for many European countries, the history of World War II is still very much a part of the way they think of themselves in the world. And I think that, you know, the, you can, um, you have to understand China through the lens of what they went through in World War II to understand how they think of themselves today. Obviously, the, the relationship that I'm writing about is really between the U.S. forces and the nationalist government and at this point now it was sort of a, a rebel force off in the hills um, who would come to power after the end of World War II. But there's a lot of complexity there that you get to see through the lens of, of, uh, uh, of the various characters in the book. You're, there is, and that's that's one of the things that makes it compelling. But where I am on this is I never have gotten a clear copy of exactly why Japan was invading China. What What was the precursor to that? I mean, I understand Nanjing because of what went wrong in Shanghai, but why were they invading China in the first place? I think, you know, in the 19... It's a great question, and I, I am not a specialist in Japanese history. My, my story is really told through the lens of the Americans who are involved in this. But broadly speaking, Japan, you know, Imperial Japan in this period was aggressive in invading, you know, a, a variety of different countries for natural resources. And they really saw themselves as um, the country that should be the hegemon and control of um, East Asia. And so they invaded, you know, throughout the 1930s and into 1941, a variety of different um, countries in Asia, including, you know, what was then French Indochina and Thailand. 
And so the, the attack um, that happens in December 7, 1941, against the United States, it really stems, um, you know, from a broad view that, um, you know, they, they sort of should be in control of Asia, and they felt that, you know, the Roosevelt administration wasn't allowing them to, to have what they felt was their proper sphere of influence in Asia. So they really looked at FDR even well before the uh, the bombing of uh, of uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. They looked at him as, as sort of the evil empire. But early, when we're looking at the 30s, at least on paper, uh, the U.S. isn't involved uh, at all. It's these renegades who, who happen to be Americans. Uh, were the what became the Flying Tigers? Were their activities sort of uh, a reason that China w- uh, that uh, Japan would ultimately bomb Pearl Harbor. You know, I, I you know I think that um, you know, and I, I do write in the book about how there were essentially renegade pilots going all the way back to 1937 who were there without any official authorization, and the State Department really didn't want them there because you know it sort of caused an international incident to have um, rogue American pilots. Right. That was sort of common in that era to have American pilots flying in different um, uh, wars around the world. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, that what, the, what the book tries to do is show that there's just a lot more complexity in history than, than we typically think of. You know, you have um, a lot of the book takes place in, in Burma, which was um, a British colony. And so you have, you know, British interests that are there. Um, and, and the Americans are interacting with the British in, in helping to defend Burma in 1941. And they're interacting with, you know, the Chinese, who are both, you know, the nationalist forces, but later on, a lot of these guys, particularly the OSS officers, developed relations with the communist forces because they thought that that was an important uh, ally for them to have. And I tell one story in the book about how um, Claire Chenault had a meeting with a guerrilla leader from what was then French Indochina who had helped to save some American pilots. And this, this guerrilla leader um, comes and meets with him, and, and Chenault gives him some, some pistols and autographs a photo for him. And the, the guerrilla leader would go around saying how how you know proud he was of his relationship with the American officer, and and that was Ho Chi Minh, um, who you know of course would go on to to lead the Viet Cong forces, um, and so you just get to see you know all these different snippets of history that that show you know sort of the textbook um, way that we learn history is you know it's not wrong it's just that the the real lived experience is in some ways is so much more complex and and interesting. Um, and, and of course, you, you open this by talking about uh, the Flying Tigers um, uh, cargo airline, and that that was a derivation of the Flying Tigers unit because these guys kept doing a variety of endeavors after the war. And so you sort of get to see this, this broad swath of history told through this very interesting lens. It's interesting that. The public perception of these people, what little there was to some extent, was that they were they were mercenaries, and I, I think that caused many of them to bristle. It was what 1991 before the Pentagon gave them an award for what they did. Yeah, it, you know, it took yeah 50 years um, for the Pentagon to acknowledge that this had been an official unit, and for many years these guys really wanted that recognition and left the. U.S. Armed Forces to, to participate in this unit, and they felt like there was always this reputation that, you know, they were mercenaries, and they, they had been paid well to do this, but really for, for these guys, you know, this was really about 
um, you know, initially about going on an adventure. Um, and, you know, many of you guys were children of the Great Depression who wanted to see more of the world. And then, you know, they, they really did this out of a sense of duty, um, you know, fighting against the Japanese um, after Pearl Harbor because their country had been attacked. And that first battle was December 20th, 1941. The Japanese sent bombers over Kunming, China, which they had been doing essentially with impunity for years. And the American pilots were able to um, shoot down a, a large number of the Japanese planes. And that was a huge moment for the Chinese uh, residents of Kunming. And as you mentioned, it made its way back into the papers in the U.S. and the Time magazine and quickly became sort of one of these early stories in the war of how Americans were fighting back and winning. Um, and and that, that meant the world to Americans who were really concerned about whether this war was winnable at all. Oh, right. And, uh, of course, for most people, those mentions were the first time they, they'd heard of this activity. And in some ways, we're pretty close, I think, to the first time that America, while maybe not publicly, but at least privately, is uh, is certainly taking a role. Now, when Chenault first went over there, I assume the Americans were, uh, if anything, either not pleased or just silent. At what point did they say, hey, we got an asset here, maybe we should guide them, even if it's under the table? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think the American forces quickly realized that there was something important going on here and decided that they wanted to take control of it. And Chenault really did not, you know, deal well with authority. So they sent over um, Joseph Stilwell to command American forces in, in China and Burma, and he and Chenault really clashed. Um, and Chenault uh, spent the remainder of the war in China. The Flying Tigers were officially disbanded July 4th, 1942, but Chenault spent the rest of the war there, and he always felt that, you know, the, the brass above him didn't give him the resources he needed, didn't take him seriously. Um, and China eventually sort of became a secondary theater compared to um, other parts of the war. And so um, when the USS Missouri, the surrender ceremony is taking place there in 1945, he's not there. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it clearly irked him that he was not sort of given the what, what he thought was the appropriate recognition he deserved, having essentially fought against the Japanese for nine years. And so he goes Louisiana in 1945 and decides that he felt more at home in China by that point than he did um, at home in Louisiana. So he goes back to China, marries a a younger Chinese woman who became Anna Chenault um, and spent the rest of his life sort of dividing his time between China and and what became Taiwan and and the U.S. Um, And so it's just a fascinating human story at the center of it. And I, I got to interview um, his widow and his daughter, and and get access to a lot of his private papers, which I think really helped to bring the story alive. Oh, a- absolutely. And it was sort of a, a theme in Claire Chenault's life. When he was in the Army Air Corps, he, he felt he was being dissed by people. He, he never really felt he got the recognition he got deserved and uh, that he deserved. And the, the truth in terms of this is that if it weren't for his renegade spirit initially, it's hard to say if that group would have ever been formed. I mean, later, obviously, the government took a role and an interest in this, but you look at its genesis and if people like Claire Chenault didn't say, hey, I'm going over, this might have never happened. Yeah, you know, I think it sort of took these rogue characters, you know, to sort of stay at the 
at the center of it. Um, and, and they really, you know, took these incredible risks um, that, that allowed themselves to be in a position where they could really help to fight this war in, in, the, in these very dire moments. One of the things you've pointed out, and also it's in a lot of the publicity for the book, is that until the Flying Tigers, the untold story of the American pilots who waged a secret war against Japan, which you wrote a couple years ago now when you were doing the research even before that, uh, the, the deal was that all we knew, we knew from diaries. So with that in mind, how did you do this research? Yeah, it, it was really one of the joys of working on this that, um, you know, I, I came across the story of the Flying Tigers. I was sort of familiar with the broad outlines. I found there just wasn't a book that told the story well. So I spent years working with family members to track down the combat reports and the diaries and the letters and photographs that had never been published before and, and finding old newspaper articles from that period. It really helped to bring um, the story alive through the voices of the people who were there. So, for instance, when I when I was started working on this, I was a graduate student at Yale, and I found very deep in a basement archive a collection of letters from a nurse who had been in the unit. Her name was Emma Foster, oh, yeah. and she um, went over on uh, the boat um, and fell in love on the way there with a pilot named John Petak. Um, and they were separated during the war, and they wrote these letters back and forth to each other that were just incredible, and you could hold them in your hands. And that's really when I knew that I had to tell the story, you know, to tell the human story of these, um, you know, young men and women who sort of found themselves running headlong into this incredibly important historical moment. Um, and from there went around working with the families to track down all sorts of things that hadn't been published before. And it was such an honor to bring that together in one place. And um, I, as I mentioned, I got to know the last surviving flying tiger. His name was Frank Lazonski. And it was such an honor to be able to go to his home and present him with this finished book um, yeah. and, and let him know that this story was going to live on. And, you know, the, the reviews of the book have been great, but the most moving feedback I got about the book was talking to family members who said, you know, my, my my dad never really talked that much about this, and we wanted to sort of pass the story on to the next generation, and this book was able to, to do that, to, to sort of tell why this story was important. Yeah, time, timing is everything. I think had you not embarked when you did, uh, not only would you have not met Frank, but a lot of these resources would have been lost. And uh, I'm so pleased that he was, in fact, still alive to know it had been written. We're talking to Sam Kleiner, The Flying Tigers, the untold story of the American pilots who waged a secret war against Japan. If you want to join us, 888-876-5593. It's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. <laughs>
Kenny and Tommy, Kenny Gamble and Tommy Bell on Jerry Ross's Heritage Records, 1962. And no, it didn't chart. Long before any of their hits, long before Philadelphia International. But a big happy birthday to Kenny Gamble, who turned 77 yesterday. I'm Raleigh James, and it is WGN Radio, and we are talking history. And uh, it's living proof that history need not be boring, particularly when you put the human element to it. And that's what the Flying Tigers, the untold story of the American pilots who waged a secret war against Japan, is all about. Sam Kleiner is the author, and he's joining me this hour. And, you know, what's interesting about this is that you're proving, again, that the human condition and human nature doesn't change. And this is rarely brought up in most of the history tomes that we tackle. And it seems like whether it's 2020 or whether it's 1940 or 1840, human nature is pretty static. And the emotional trials we go through daily really don't change. And I find that a fascinating part of this book. Yeah, thanks. It's a, it's a really, you know, it was a really great honor to tell the story, and I, I think that there's a lot that is worth remembering. We're approaching the um, 75th anniversary at the end of World War II, VJ Day, next month, and um, there's there's really important lessons, I think, from this unit about how Americans from all different walks of life can come together for a common purpose. Um, and that's that's one of the really great things that I loved about um, this story was the ability to, to tell all these different human stories of how these pilots, you know, Jack Newkirk from Scarsdale, New York, and um, uh, Tex Hill, nicknamed from Texas, um, came together for a common purpose and were able to work together in these really trying circumstances. And so I think when we think about you know, where our country is today and what we can learn from the stories from the greatest generation. I think that's something that really stands out to me. It does. And you mentioned the the backdrop of where we are today versus then. And I think World War II was the last war that Americans en masse were unified behind. Uh, since then, we've had uh, really no actual wars. We've had police actions and uh, conflicts and things of this nature. And uh, the the idea that we were all uh, fighting together for uh, for a common common cause, we really haven't had that since then. The interesting thing to me about the early days is I, I was talking about being amazed about Japan uh, continually attacking China. And yes, imperialism clearly sums that up. And we usually think about uh, the British uh, Isles as being, you know, uh, the big imperialists. But clearly China was, uh, Japan was trying. And you look at the size of Japan and the size of China, and you say to yourself, what were they thinking I'm I'm very curious, and maybe maybe someday you'll write a book about this. But in terms of what was the mindset of of Japan that they thought, oh yeah, we'll invade countries that are hundreds of times larger than us. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I'll leave it to a, a historian of Imperial Japan to answer it. But um, it certainly was a very brutal invasion, and I think that you know you. you um, readers get to see a lot of that um, through through the course of the book, um, and it really presaged a lot of you know the combat that we would see happening in Europe just a couple years later in terms of the use of the airplane as a tool for massive civilian um, bombardment, which hadn't really been done before. Um, and, and so there's just you know it's it's a really overlooked part of the war, but it's very much worth 
um, Americans sort of looking at afresh. Um, and I, I think that as we approach the 75th anniversary of the end of the war, um, this, this is an important story that's worth um, building into sort of the collective way that we remember and talk about World War II. I I agree, and unfortunately, being the 75th anniversary coming up, we really are talking about the last few remaining enlistees who are alive. It's not going to be that long before we say that, well, the the last is now gone, and so uh, no time like like the present for that. Thank you for writing the book, and thanks for spending an hour with us. Absolutely, and um, listeners can find it. It's The Flying Tigers, The Untold Story of the American Pilots Who Wage a Secret War Against Japan. It's on Amazon, but Costco, and wherever books are sold. You betcha. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Yeah, and there's some great uh, great prices on Amazon right now, too. And like I said, that's in, in every uh, every format, if you want it as an Audible or if you want it as a Kindle. And I think if you're uh, an Amazon Prime member, the Audible is actually free. So uh, so check it out, The Flying Tigers. And uh, it, it is fascinating to me. It's also, when you, when you look, we were talking before about the uh, Nanjing massacre. When you look at the level of brutality in that, uh, and uh, not only the number of deaths, which number in the hundreds of thousands, but uh, the the rapes and, and the pillage and, and everything else involved, it, it's hard to imagine, but remember, the invaders felt absolutely justified in doing this, and that's a that's a part of human nature that is is very dangerous all the way around. But uh, yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't undertaken lightly.